0: You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, and welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today it's my pleasure to be sharing the microphones with Daniel Grunowski a man who has spent much of the last decade unpicking the challenge of connecting researchers to the industries and investors that can turn their discoveries into a commercial success. As you'll hear, Daniel's journey has allowed him to experience many parts of the commercialization pipeline, from fundamental research and university commercialization units to venture capital and even a startup of his own. Daniel is now with the Big Four accounting firm Deloitte, where he is serving as a national technology facilitator, helping researchers and industry connect through the Australian Government's Entrepreneurs Program. It's a role that has made him particularly passionate about the importance of small to medium enterprise as a driver for innovation in Australia. Daniel Granovsky, welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. So you've worked across quite a broad spectrum of the Australian startup and innovation ecosystem. How do you currently describe yourself and your role when you're meeting new people?
1: <laughs> so this, this is, I guess, something I've struggled with my entire life. Uh, at the moment, I probably describe myself as a management consultant. That's the easiest thing for people to grasp. But what I really do is I work for Deloitte, but for the federal government. So. Uh, I have a boss in Deloitte and I have a boss in the federal government, and I'm working on a grant program that the government provides, which also provides advisory services to small to medium businesses.
0: Thanks for that, Daniel. And I'll definitely ask the audience to hold that thought because the program that you're responsible for, the Entrepreneurs' Program, is incredibly valuable for building these connections between industry and universities. But before we get there, can I ask you a bit more about your personal journey and in particular how you became interested in science? What's your science origin story?
1: So I I guess I've always been interested in technologies. My dad's a civil engineer and he used to run or or manage businesses and introduce different ideas in roadworks to the country. So you see that vibrating road lines on the side of the road. He was one of the guys that brought that in and then got bought out by Boral and stuff like that. So I've always been a part of what can be new, what can be introduced, but I've always been a bit of a a bookworm and like reading broadly and and got into a selective school, got into an accelerated chemistry class and and have been really interested in that space. I I really remember that I did this research assignment when I was in high school on the use of spider venom in pesticides to open iron channels in insect neurons. I I mean, I look back at it now and I go, the signs were there, but at at the time I was just trying to do things that were interested to me. And so uh, when I looked through the UAC guide, um, I was picking things that were of interest to me, and UTS had this course in nanotechnology plus the business side, and I thought, that sounds really, really interesting. I'm going to go and join the six other people that did that in the first year.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that was an incredibly interesting course, Daniel, and I expect you were quite near the forefront of universities trying to blend in the entrepreneurial skills alongside the science training. What was UTS's thinking around designing the course this way? And, and what did you personally get out of having both sides?
1: I personally thought it was really valuable. We got a really broad grounding in science. So I don't know how much uh, you know about nanotechnology at that time, but it was really just the concept of a manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. So we did quantum physics, biochemistry, engineering, sustainability. We did this really broad range of, of science and engineering subjects. And then on top of that, a really traditional business education. So basic accounting, basic marketing. On top of that, there were some specialist subjects around, you know, raising capital. So it, it was very much from the basics. How do you build a financial model? How do you convince people that are quite risk-averse and all that type of stuff? The problem with nanotechnology was that when I came out of the degree, there was two companies in Australia doing nanotechnology blatantly. So there was, there was Ambry, which is doing biosensors. And there was CapExX, which was the supercapacitor, which I still think exists.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the pool of opportunity was not huge in Australia at the time, but you could have taken your degree and gone into those companies as a technical type employee. But it seems like you were much more attracted to the business skills and the application of business to innovation. Ultimately, I think you ended up at a company called Concentric as your first job. Can you tell us about that role and, and that company?
1: Yeah, they, they were, um, so they were the local reseller for uh, Dasso Systems, which is one of the big CAD companies. Uh, but they're a really interesting founder. He now runs, or he ran at the time, but he now runs a um, engineering educational piece for high school students where they design and build Formula One racing cars and race them down a track. And this is a big international competition. But at the same time, we had a, uh, a short run foundry in Brisbane and Melbourne. Um, we were doing 3D printing and titanium sintering and um, UV-cured polymers and all that type of stuff. Yep, before it was cool. Um, to the point where the business actually ended up losing its contract with Katia and Dasso um, and the prototyping just couldn't keep it afloat because no one knew what it was. Um, we, we did things like put uh, 3D printed intake valves on Neil Bates' rally car and stuff like that. We did, there was some really cool things.
0: Yeah, really interesting first experience there, Daniel. And it's it's a very challenging environment because that prototype as a service model has very little repeat business. You're forever chasing new customers and new projects. And I wonder, firstly, how you got that job. And secondly, what that sales environment and sales cycle taught you that you've carried forward into the rest of your career?
1: So the way it was described to me when I was picked up by this company that puts people into sales roles. They really liked scientists because the way that scientists are trained to think is that everything is a question and you have to seek answers. And in solution selling, which is the kind of stuff we did in the software world, you need to ask a lot of questions to understand what the customer wants. And so it's, probably a reason why I was probably ahead of the curve in terms of the business thinking. Um, because in advising academics and advising entrepreneurs, it, it's very much who can you talk to? What commitments can you get? Because that's the other thing in sales is that it teaches you that the goal is to get a commitment or a continuation. The goal is not just to get, you know, someone saying, yeah, I like your idea. It's to get them to commit to something. Um, and that is something that I do find that is missing in, when people try to start something.
0: Yeah, clearly some important learnings there, Daniel, and learnings that you've taken forwards as you've moved into this space around academic translation with New South Innovations and UNSW proper, and also UniSeed, the venture capital fund. Now, I might broadly characterise those as research translation, but I'd love to get some specifics around the type of projects you were working on and the type of people that you were interacting with as you were taking on that next phase in your career.
1: Yeah, so it's it's interesting. This is the connection between um, my initial sales role. I didn't know commercialization was a thing. The company I was working for went into administration. I was looking for something new. Um, and UNSW at the time was looking for someone that would 50% of their time do commercialization. Uh, and 50% of their time would manage this software product. They had this software product that was an internal business called Kakadu Software that produced a JPEG 2000 compression uh, software development kit that was used in things like speed cameras and satellites and um in the end we had it licensed to people like nasa and the british antarctic survey and the, the british library and stuff like that they were selling it as an upfront pay twenty thousand dollars and you get the use of this source code forever so i came in and i introduced more modern licensing practices that i'd learned from the software side side of things so things like subscriptions and including updates or not including updates or having the user licensing defined by the size of the company, all these different bits and pieces. So that was primarily what I started with there. Uh, Eventually, I I built up a a process and transitioned to to more junior staff later on uh, and worked more towards the commercialization stuff. We were doing traditional commercialization, then we decided to set up this concept of easy access IP, which my old boss, Kevin Cullen brought in, but also a team focusing on high value commercialization. So a couple of us were for a while focused on things like if we can pick what we think are the top five or 10 technologies each and focus on them, then we should have more success. And this comes down to the challenge of commercialization is really that we were getting something like 100 to 140 technology disclosures a year. And there was only about eight of us doing the actual business development. So, I mean, the the job was more sorting through and deciding what to progress than it was actually actively commercializing it. So that, that was an interesting period of time where we had an ability to focus on what we saw were the best picking winners, I guess. And then eventually transitioned into uh, being in charge of commercializing all the UNSW solar pieces, uh, working with people like Martin Green and Stuart Wenham and, and stuff like that, which was really interesting, much more around the large, big, multi-company contracts and stuff like that. Um, and sitting on the investment committee for Uniseed, which I, I found really fascinating, which was kind of the, the seed that started my next step beyond that.
0: Mm. Can, can I ask in this role, you were kind of coming in, I guess, early in your career, but still with some commercial insights and background. What were your feelings on the commercial awareness and knowledge base of the researchers you were dealing with? Were there some big gaps that were common that you would say researchers need to be more mindful of? Um, I, I think that this
1: idea that researchers need to be one way or another is a bit of a, a false direction to go. because They're, they're a, an ecosystem of entrepreneurs in their own mind and some focus on grants and some focus on industry and some focus on students and there's just this huge variety of knowledge and skills a lot of the researchers i worked with were really well connected in the industry so they actually had a good idea about how industry worked and that was helpful in some cases in a hindrance in others and other academics had no idea about industry but were willing to then also allow the the companies that they worked with to take the leads on the commercial side of things So it it can be both a benefit and a harm, the knowledge of industry. It it just really depends on the individuals.
0: And can I ask another question about this time too? You said that, you know, you were getting this flood of disclosures and for the audience benefit, that is, discoveries that the researchers themselves have identified as having commercial significance. Mm -hmm. You were obviously picking a very small percentage of those. Do you feel like the majority of disclosures lack commercial potential or is it just that your lack of resources meant that you necessarily missed opportunities?
1: It's funny. So when I was doing the high value stuff, we were only picking specific things, Um, but the rest of the team was still doing everything. And and one of the, the challenges of commercialization within a university setting is the goal is not necessarily to get the best ideas in front of the best people and get a return for the university. The goal is really to keep the academics who are political powers within the university happy. Um, And so the goal was more to give each technology its shot and, you know, assess it and make a, a plan for it and potentially contact some companies so you get spread very thin very quickly. Some technologies would get a lot of attention. Some technologies would get not get not as much attention. Some technologies would be led by the academic who'd find partners. Some technologies would be led by um, the business development person. The problem was that it wasn't very systematic and there wasn't really a good approach. When I when I did my um, MBA, I did some touring of the institutions in the UK. And the best model for commercialization that I could find was actually something that UCLB was doing, UCL Business. Where they actually had a pitch to commercialization function. So I would have liked to try that here, but my time, I moved on to something else at that point. And, and I think that's a challenge as well. Uh, in the commercialization offices, people come in and then people leave, and they, they, we lose resources in that regard. So we probably should be better at cultivating our commercialization tana, talent and keeping them within commercialization so they can evolve.
0: Mm, yeah, that, I mean, that pitch to commercialization is it's not too dissimilar from what you moved on to at Uniseed. Can you talk us through, I guess, Uniseed and and how that interacts with the universities?
1: Uniseed is funded by the university. So rather than it being moved on to, it's, it's an additional thing. So UNSW, University of Melbourne, University of Queensland, CSIRO, all provide funding to Uniseed and get basically a seat on their investment committee. Uniseed is very much a traditional venture capital fund, but focused on startups which come out of the institutions which were provided funding. The difference is uh, between the UCLB model and Uniseed is that Uniseed, it has its goal to create a spin out. And that spin out needs a leader. And that leader is often the academic or a business development guy from the universities um, who then has to go into that full time. Whereas I think there's potentially a step before it, which UCLB was doing, which is you know we don't know whether it's going to be a license or a spin out we need someone to put time and resources into developing that next step and, and that is something that i feel like is still missing in the australian ecosystem there is this step between the idea and it being commercially ready for one of the traditional startup or licensing paths
0: so is that something of the nature of a translation grant so you know an arc Or similar bit of funding, which is not targeting publications, but is giving the research team time to build it out as a commercial going concern.
1: Um, I think it's not necessarily the research team. I think that it's requiring dedicated resources in terms of time and skill sets. And we we did this with a few projects at UNSW. There was one that came to mind, which uh, I helped a colleague of mine, Alfredo, commercialise. It was a uh, second order polynomial histogram estimator software for flow cytometry data uh, <laughs> yeah no it's a mouthful we called it sophie um, the effort that went into that was we needed to get a software developer to create a prototype we needed to go to conferences and build relationships with the flow cytometry software and hardware providers we needed the two of us to build business models and and Set up those relationships and stuff like that. That was a significant project. Um, And we didn't have the resources to do that on all the potential um, technologies that came through the university. And at the end of that, it could have been a spin out or it could have been a licensing deal. It could have been either of those.
0: Yeah, Daniel, I can definitely agree. And I see that there's value in the sort of funding that would allow the time and space for universities and their research teams to explore those opportunities. But I'd also like to pick up on something you said just at the end there, which is this idea of licensing and spin out being these two competing pathways through which university discoveries can find life in the commercial world. I'd love to hear your perspective on whether universities, in your view, have a preference to one side or the other and what the merits are of going down a licensing path versus a spin out path.
1: Taking a step back, I think that there's a concept of creating an idea. And then that idea leading a relationship or a a spin out that I think needs rework. So startups essentially need to have a problem that they're led by. Those problems may or may not be solved by technology. And then they also need a team that's interested in solving the problem. But they need a team that's interested in solving the problem and not wedded to the solution. And so that's a challenge for universities right there. Potentially, they need to be better focused on what is the problem? And then they could collect multiple potential solutions for that problem. And that would make a really well-resourced startup. But there's too much focus on the startup side of things and not enough focus on the creation of partnerships, which may not be based on a technology that are just based on solving a problem. Because if you go to a company and say, I've got this great solution that will solve your problems, and this is going back to what I understand about sales, you're not really getting their impact on the problem before you've given them solutions. There's no real ownership there of that solution fitting their problem. I suspect that a better approach might be to push a capability out. So for example, UNSW has an expertise in quantum computing. If hypothetically there were quantum computing companies out there with a problem, you could go out and seek those companies problems, take it to your academics and then potentially find solutions in that list that are based on those problems. And we did a little bit of this at UNSW, doing design thinking workshops to build uh, research questions for partnerships, and, and that was really successful. There needs to be more of that.
0: Yeah, I think that's really insightful, Daniel. The, you're definitely right. A lot of researchers come out with with their chosen technology or you know their, their baby and expect the world to bend to that. And being more open-minded about what solutions might actually best suit the end users. Uh, and it's it's often not, you know, the one that they've been working on for 20 years, which is perhaps hard to stomach for a research entrepreneur. Yeah. C- can I ask? I guess you're talking about that collaborative side now, that really does fit into your current role around the entrepreneurs program, and particularly things like innovation connections. So what is your process and your understanding of the way that universities work with incumbent industry on collaborative research? So
1: the the idea that we push ideas rather than capabilities is not just unique to the university sector. There's this huge volume of SMEs within Australia that have unique capabilities that basically push out the outputs of their work. We can create a widget for the mining industry. But what goes behind that is they have capabilities in design and 3D printing and manufacturing and testing and all that type of stuff. I think that that's one of the challenges that comes in the way between Australian universities working with Australian SMEs is that neither one knows what each of them can do for each other. In seven years or eight years at UNSW, I think I did three deals with Australian companies. Most of my deals were international. And so that is... My experience of collaborations with the university sector is that I had conversations with Australian companies and I saw the opportunity with Australian companies, but most of the interest that we received and most of the commitment we received were from overseas companies or overseas investors who understood that they could get ideas out of universities and that they sought the expertise
0: yeah, can I can I pull that thread a little, Daniel? Because it's often presented as a problem that Australian ideas end up being commercialised by companies outside of Australia, and that we don't you know, capture the value from it. Do you think that is actually you know a loss for Australia, or is it just a natural consequence that there are bigger markets and you know bigger venture capital fish, and that is the place that you know the highest value can be obtained for Australian discoveries?
1: Yeah. So you're going to get
0: one of my bugbears there. It it really,
1: it depends. Putting my strategic hat on, it depends on the opportunity and the market. So one of the ones that is held up as a big loss for Australia is the solar industry. And as you know, I spent a fair bit of time working on commercializing the solar technologies out of UNSW. Now, understanding the solar market, those are commodity products. So the lowest cost product wins. And so we're we're talking about companies that manufacture in China or in Korea that will shave cents per kilowatt hour off solar cell manufacturing. And then therefore they will make more money because they can sell more of those cells, which are slightly cheaper. That's not something that I would see as an aspirational goal for Australian manufacturing. The Australian manufacturing that I've seen excels at things that are high value, low volume. So one of my clients uh, in the entrepreneurs program, harvest pericardian tissue from cattle in Dubbo and uh, turn that into leaflets for heart valve replacements. So you think about the skill set that's required to do that. You need really skilled staff. You need a good understanding of quality. You need a good network in the medical sector. And then that network will play a, a huge increase in value for that product. Um, And they're they're the areas that Australian companies really excel at, defense, aerospace, things where we can produce something that's really, really high quality, um, that might be small volumes. And they're the ones where I think we miss opportunities locally if those ones go overseas. So things that come into potentially the space sector or things that come into defense or medical technologies, all those kind of things, they they would be a, a real disappointment if they disappeared overseas.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. and I mean, you mentioned there that the at-scale products, the commodity products, are not necessarily Australia's space to play. I wonder what you make of the narrative around Industry 4.0 and the influx of automation, allowing countries like ours to circumvent the issues of labour cost and become a low-cost producer through automation. Do you think Australia will ever be cost competitive at at at-scale manufacturing?
1: Oh, uh, 100%. But it it just depends on the product. So, for example, I've seen kitchen manufacturing facilities in Australia that they produce a cheaper product. They're fully automated. They can go from a 3D design to a a custom kitchen in 45 minutes. They're a great example of how automation can really make manufacturing uh, worthwhile. But they're still a value product. So at the other end, someone values it highly. They value the ability to customize it. They value the ability to get it next week and not have to wait for a ship to arrive and stuff like that. Same goes with high-tech stuff that can be highly customized, you know, or uh, goes into critical infrastructure like turbines and rocket engines and all different bits and pieces. Those things are really good. But I think that when you're talking about commodity products like energy or nuts and bolts. Like I, I wouldn't expect, and no matter how automated the machinery, I wouldn't expect that an Australian company would go into making the screws that you buy at Bunnings, simply because the cost competition, it, it comes down to, you know, what's the energy price? What's the cost of the machine operator? We have to recognize there will always be a, a market that will take that at a cheaper cost than us. And we've got to look at it and go is that really in our best interest to be focusing on that? We should be focusing on things where we can use our knowledge and our expertise to get increased value.
0: Yeah, very well put, Dan. And I dare say we're getting into the consultancy side of your brain now. So let's move there in the chronology as well. You got hired by Deloitte, one of the big four consultancy firms, to help deliver the Entrepreneurs Program on behalf of the Australian government. Before we get into your own role, I wonder if you could just summarize the Entrepreneurs Program for anyone in the audience who hasn't experienced it yet.
1: Yeah, so the Entrepreneurs Program is a collection of grants and advisory services um, for primarily Australian startups and SMEs. There are restrictions on what stage of development you are as a company, as to which program that you can apply for. but. On the high end, you've got accelerating commercialization, where it's a a million-dollar grant and services to help startups commercialize something. Uh, And on the other end, you've got um, growth services, which is smaller grants, $20,000, but a year of support from an experienced business coach, basically, to help you focus on what areas of your SME require support. My role is uh, one of what we call specialists. So... The specialists are a bunch of management consultants in various technical backgrounds that sit across the top of all of the entrepreneurs program um, services. And we provide advice to help companies remove the inertia from, I know that I need to do something, but I don't know where to start, who to talk to and what my options are. Specifically, I work with companies around technologies, So anything from you know, energy to automation to Uh, lean manufacturing principles, all the way through to materials, computer vision systems, artificial intelligence, anything like that. Um, We also have a team that works on business management systems they should use, and another team that works on, you know, design thinking around branding and business models and stuff like that. And it's this great collection of free management consulting advice for Australian SMEs up to about $100 million.
0: Yeah, thanks for that overview, Dan, of, I guess, the overarching mission and vision of the Entrepreneurs' Program. I'd love to get some of your case studies as well, just looking through your own LinkedIn. I know you've worked through SunDrive and Quantum Brilliance, and I'm sure a bunch of other companies. I wonder if any have stood out for you as great case studies of the benefits this program can provide to these emerging and innovative businesses.
1: Look, my my favorite ones are actually the small stories. So, Um, I have one client that manufacture custom thermal blankets for exhaust systems for vehicles in in, uh, mining. So uh, you can imagine an exposed exhaust. It's a heat source. It's potentially a risk of fire within a mine. And they make uh, basically an insulated blanket that wraps on bolts around those exhausts. Um, The manager of that business, it's a small business, uh, would go to these mine sites and hand measure every single one of those exhausts to make sure that it fit perfectly every time. And if you can imagine the the cost of the managing director of a business doing all the quotes and measures himself in regional and remote areas, it was a big barrier for their business. Um, So I introduced them to things like laser scanning and and 3D scanning and those kind of systems. Uh, Within six months, he'd bought a system and he'd trained up two staff to do it for him. And so those kind of stories are my favorites. Um, but stories like Microtow, I think they were an AC recipient. And so they're a good example of a company that went through that slow, hard, deep tech development process and um, seems to be going really well as well. Um, great technology. Quantum Brilliance is is... Uh, a more recent engagement that I've had, um, they've been through multiple parts of the Entrepreneurs' Program. So if you're a startup founder and you get an Accelerating Commercialization grant, you can then also access the other parts of the program as well, which you wouldn't normally be able to do until you'd hit 1.5 million in revenue. And so they've gone through this process of developing an idea uh, through to how do we then produce these units with quality and precision for our initial customers? So I'd like to say that I went to talk to them about technology in the quantum space, but I didn't. I mostly talked to them about manufacturing processes and how how to do quality management and where they might hire people that can do that kind of manufacturing work or support that kind of manufacturing work.
0: So we've talked about the Entrepreneurs Program and I guess a few examples that have come across your desk of companies innovating in that space, but I wanted to take a, a broader view now. Because I know you wrote a think piece on LinkedIn towards the end of last year around the role of SME enterprises in driving innovation in Australia. I just wondered if you could summarize that article and your viewpoints on the role that those types of organizations play in creating new technologies. And how it might be distinct from university-driven discovery science or indeed the kind of R&D processes that big businesses might run.
1: So the premise for me starting of the role that I took with Deloitte is that my understanding of SME innovation is that SMEs tended not to collaborate very well in Australia. They tended to lean on bringing ideas in from overseas and potentially weren't as engaged culturally in their innovation ecosystem as I would have liked. What I've learned since is that Australian SMEs are really interested in innovation But there's still a tendency of them to want to solve something internally. That's great. Like they're more innovative than I thought. And there's a huge potential opportunity there. But it's also a limiting factor on their ability to innovate. We have this huge opportunity as a country and this massive volume of SMEs. a huge portion of businesses out there are SMEs. And a lot of them are doing really interesting things internally and not talking to each other or talking to universities to upskill and really supercharge that development. I think that the opportunity for the innovation ecosystem and uh, universities in particular uh, is to think about SMEs as how can we take an SME rather than a startup and turn it into a GE, a long-term sustainable business that continues to create innovative ideas and support them and build them up and out there. And that, that will take improving the professionalization of the management within the SME. It will take, you know, links to technical skills and research and long-term relationships and long-term thinking. And so that's the opportunity that I'm really interested in. Instead of focusing on starting the next great business, how do we focus on taking already great businesses and just making them grow bigger and stronger and faster in a more systematic way with a well-connected network of supporters?
0: Yeah, Dan, that's a really important challenge. And I think it's important that this framing of the narrative kind of runs contrary to the startup culture that had emerged over the last five or 10 years. So it's interesting to see SMEs brought back to the center of the debate when it comes to university collaboration. And we should probably end by plugging one of the aspects of the Entrepreneurs' Program we haven't talked about yet, which is innovation connections. Can you tell us about that program and how it fits into this space of university SME linkages?
1: Yeah, so... Innovation Connections is a really interesting program. It not only provides grants to fund research projects, but the IC facilitators uh, are all networked into the university sector. So they provide both the grant and also support in locating the right person, managing the the establishment of the project, making sure that the contract is good for the SME, for that research, and making sure that there's deliverable outcomes. It's not something that was big when I was at UNSW, but I wish I had had it or engaged with it more when I was in commercialization, because it would have been so much more helpful having that mediator between the university and the SME. And, and they, they, they sit squarely on the sides of the SMEs. And, and that's what SMEs really need. They need experts within their corner that are able to help them navigate, you know, what are complex environments? Universities are complex, government's are complex, grants are complex, big organization are complex. And the more people that we can have out there that an SME can call up and talk to um, and get unbiased advice, the easier it will be to create those connections. And once those connections have been created once, those businesses generally... They'll go through a researcher engagement, then they might have a graduate, then they'll start accessing interns. And that flow of knowledge from the university to the SMEs is is only positive on both sides.
0: Yeah, I totally agree, Dan. These things have a way of growing over time and kind of reinforcing themselves once they're underway. But getting everybody over that initial apprehension is such an important step. To round off, I wondered if we could flip this a little and and hear about your thoughts on what the researchers can do to enable this. Do you have any advice to to researchers who are interested in working with industry through these channels?
1: So, my my advice to researchers is twofold. The the first is make sure you have good conversations with the people that are involved within the ecosystem as their day job. So, So people like you, Leo. Uh, people in commercialization offices, in partnerships units, innovation connections facilitators, they'll they'll all be happy to talk to you about, you know, what your goals are, uh, what you you'd like to engage with industry about, where you want to go. I mean, you're going, you're as a researcher, you're going to have a research question that you want to follow in mind. And if they can find companies that are interested in that same research question, getting involved with that company early will help you both be on the same page for the research project. It's far easier to do it then than it is to do it later on when you've already got an idea or you're halfway down the research path. Um, The other side of that that I would say is if you need to have something made or developed, created or set up, whether it's software or hardware or, or something like that, that's a complete other avenue that you have to form a relationship with Australian companies. Some of the most innovative companies out there in Australia are contract manufacturers. So people like Roamer Engineering in Sydney, they have done things like co-fund a three D printer with CSIRO and hire a, a, an engineer from SpaceX that's worked on rocket engines and things like that. And if you're a, as a researcher, you're going to them and saying, you know, I really want this unique, one of a kind tool made, and I'd like your help making it. You become their customer as well, and they'll, they'll give you a lot of a lot of time. And then when you go back to them and say, hey, do you want to partner on a research project? They may be more open to it as well
0: yeah fantastic dan and it's been a really fascinating and insightful discussion about this space one we probably haven't covered enough of here at the lab notes podcast so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on sme-led innovation
1: happy to anytime and anyone is free to reach out to pick my brain i'm always happy to do that
0: well that's all from lab notes today thanks for listening don't forget you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs, with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalog for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now. So until next time, keep inventing.